Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. I am speaking today with Willemijn de Jong, who is based in the Netherlands um, and working for and with a really, uh, personally for me, uh, fascinating and inspiring organization called the Common Land Foundation. And we'll, we'll touch on that in a while. But uh, you know, beyond uh, working with them, um, she calls herself a communicator, facilitator, and connector, uh, but also a visual thinker who always carries colored pins. So that's pretty cool, I think. Uh, I'm just gonna make a note now that we're doing this recording slightly before Christmas in 2020, the year of COVID. Um, and the, the release, the publication of this uh, podcast will probably be um, in early in January of, of the coming year. So in a sense, we're straddling this moment of, uh, in time um, and more essentially, I think, straddling a moment of experience that um, they say for a hundred years or more has, has, has not been so, but I'm willing to bet that it's never been so. So very interesting. We'll be able to look back a bit at what we have been learning and look forward, I hope, to uh, what could come from this. Having said all that, welcome, Willemine. Hi. Welcome. Thanks, Eric, for welcoming me. Not at all. I'm really, really super interested in how you um, got to be working with Common Land. Maybe you could just give us a two or three sentence uh, sort of intro to the focus of Common Land, and we can unpack that a little bit later in the conversation, but just, sure. just to kind of ground that in time. But I'm, I'm more interested in, in what led you here. All right. Um, so Common Land uh, is, a, is a, uh, an impact organization that works a lot with local landscape partners, um, trying to enable large-scale holistic landscape restoration uh, trying to achieve multiple values in the landscape, including inspiration, social capital, natural capital, and financial capital. And that's a okay. very good summary. Really, uh, really, really tight summary, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll tell you more about it, but this is just a cliffhanger. Yeah, um, okay. And um, yeah, so my journey 
um, towards common land. I mean, I, I grew up in a in a home, a very international home. So both my parents were working in development corporation and in in um, conservation. So my dad works uh, worked a lot with uh, lion conservation, and my mother worked a lot with small scale fisheries development. So we always had at the at the dinner table there were, you know. Uh, colleagues from Ethiopia joining for dinner or from Indonesia. So I always grew up with this feeling of, you know, the world is such a big place. There's so many ways in which you can look at the world or your own place within that. So um, that sort of um, encouraged me to study anthropology. So I have a master's in, in cultural anthropology. Uh, and within that, I soon made choices to, to, yeah, to work more towards uh, the human nature relationship. So then you immediately get into human wildlife conflicts or land rights issues or fishing rights issues. So I've always been sort of fascinated with this idea of, okay, so we have one planet, we're living on this together. How do we organize ourselves in such a way that we can manage it sustainably? Um, and, and yeah, what kind of local conflicts can arise and how can you uh, move forward from those? Um, and you, and you, did that, you did that research in South Africa, did you? Correct. Yeah. So in, in South Africa, I investigated the the effects of the the post-apartheid uh, fisheries policies, where they wanted to redistribute fishing rights, and I, I looked at the effects at local uh, uh, fishing community, uh, how those new rights were sort of creating new processes of inclusion and exclusion for community members. So um, uh, it was fascinating. Yeah. So you have policy, and then how does it work out in practice, basically? And I see that even even prior to that, you were working on the Amboseli Lion Project um, and yeah. working with attitudes in in the um, the Maasai people. Correct. Yeah. So I had the the privilege and the pleasure to uh, to work in the Amboseli Lion Project, where I was collaborating together with the um, biologist, and she was investigating the lion community, who uh, part of whom were were collared, so we could uh, find them easily in the in the area. And I was looking more at the uh, yeah the human side of the conflict. So what what are the reasons or the the drivers for the community members, the Maasai community members, to retaliate and kill lions? Apart from it being a tradition, there was also a, a, a political com component within that. So I was trying to find out what their reasons were for doing that, um, and communicating that to the uh, organizations active in the area to try and find solutions. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Many, many years before that, um, 20 maybe, I <laughs> was able, I was honored to be able to do a bit of work with a Maasai leader um, who, who, so this would have been 1986, and he ended up uh, being part of launching a whole project called Parks Versus People. Okay. Uh, his name was uh, Moringe Parkepuni. Um, He's a, a local whose village had raised the funds to send him to Oxford. Mm. And he became a lawyer. Um, interesting, interesting story in itself. And then ran for parliament. Wow. Um, but at that point, this was really, you know, this was really coming to the fore that there was a very, very different agenda, um, particularly coming down from the the multinational um, environmental groups mm. around, you know, with with this kind of Euro European or Western sensibility of the only way to preserve territory and wildlife was to draw a line around it and throw everybody out. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not yeah. surprised that 20 years later that uh, is still it was manifesting conflict. Definitely, and I mean, 
in, there's a Dutch there's a Dutch writer who, who wrote a book uh, that he, he says most people are okay. Basically, that's the title. And within that book, he also analyzes where did we go wrong as a civilization in in how we manage land and how we work together. And he basically says, you know, a, a big a lot of the problems started when the first person said, "This is mine." you know, and put a fence around it and say, this is mine from now on. That's when a lot of the sort of symbolically, when a lot of the problems started because we started to sort of, yeah, pull things towards ourselves instead of towards the common good. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a fascinating topic uh, because it does affect all of how we think about the world and ourselves. Yeah, and, and given that that kind of... Um individualistic economic model that um, mm. I, I suppose most frequently is sits in the capitalism box um, is globalized. You know, okay. it's like there's not a corner of the world that's not affected now by that thinking and, and, and the actions based upon it. Yeah, and you know, I, when I studied, I, I read the article of uh, um, about the tragedy of the commons and that was sort of presented as this is the way it is. Uh, but at the same time, I was also encouraged to work with uh, Eleanor Ostrom. Uh, she, uh, she also won the Nobel Prize. And she did uh, sort of global research on how are communities sustainably managing resources? That could be fisheries, it could be land, it could be forest. So she looked at what are the characteristics of all these communities in doing this sustainably and in, 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 uh, in close collaboration. And she found that there were so many examples of people's, people being able to sustainably manage resources. So this whole idea of if you, think, if you let things loose, then everybody's going to grab whatever they want and it's all going to be empty. The ocean mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or the land. But actually there is so much evidence that we can do it differently. So that's always fascinated me. I suppose some would, would characterize that as working from our higher impulses. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And Interesting that, that despite the fact that we can flag those as higher impulses, we we tend to not actually follow them as much as, as we, we know we should. Yes, and, and, and Eleanor Ostrom, she also investigated that there are some principles that you need to have in place. So how decisions are made, um, how everybody is involved in the decision-making, um, if there are sort of rhythms in how you manage the resources. So she, she did a lot of principles that make it successful. So it's not just letting things free flow and everybody will find harmony. You need to have some rules in place, but we can manage land and resources sustainably if we just dedicate a bit of time on the governance and how we organize it. Um, it it seems, to, seems to me one of the things that, that you know, still looking backwards and hopefully looking forward or looking forward with hope that way um that has become really really clear in this in this past uh, pandemic year is yeah. the importance of governance and the necessity but also you know in in many cases the opportunity and the viability of much more local level governance yeah where people can really actually get involved and steer things. The, yeah. the way I always, in, you know, in my sense of how governance ought to happen, believe is, is the appropriate and sustainable model for that. But the deprivation and the, to a certain extent, fear um, 
or maybe a large extent, the fear that has attended this pandemic, I do believe has had a, a, a healthy effect in getting communities and individuals to really look closer at what are the things that they can actually impact and what do they want those impacts to be? Yeah, yeah. I think we we sort of were forced to go back to the local and realize, oh, wait a minute, but if the if if the supermarkets are not uh, where I can go because I don't want to get, you know, go to big crowds, where can I go? And people started going back to local farms where you can just buy produce on farm. Uh, it was just like we real. It was already there. It was always there, but suddenly we had the time and space to actually go there on a Wednesday afternoon, buy some nice vegetables instead of standing in line at the supermarket. We're, we're all just also in this rat race become a bit sort of numb and 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 life is also made very easy for us there's this 24-hour economy you can always go to the shop but actually going back to where this food is grown taking a bit more time to go there uh, because it's not maybe in the city center I think we all sort of realized at least from, from where I sit I saw a sort of uh, uh, yeah a, a new appreciation of the local and wait a minute, we're so dependent on projects, products coming from the other end of the side of the world, but there are people producing it right around our, our, our neighborhood. So why do I buy it online and why do I not buy it there? Um, but there are, of course, some uh, tensions. I mean, still a lot of people buy things online because we can't go out, but there is this sort of, yeah, re-evaluation of how do we organize our economies? How much do we buy locally or uh, uh, from other countries? Yeah, and that connects also to the work of Commonland, I think, where we're trying to create co communities, uh, thriving communities and, and healthy ecosystems where people can produce and buy products locally and have local economies of scale, uh, feel reconnected to their environment, um, and maybe even moving back. It's often also in places where there's a high depopulation rate. Um, how can you create these new hubs um, where people can just connect on products from the area uh, uh, and, and collaborate in, in, in creating these regenerative communities, basically, where you're not only just producing and consuming, but also by doing it in a regenerative way, you also continually regenerate the area you're living in instead of extracting from other places and uh, wasting it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's closing loops as well. So something interesting for me, um, I guess I need to predicate almost everything that I talk about with the fact that my observations and my following of, of, um, of news and trends and, and that sort of thing is primarily based in my own language, which is English. Um, and I'm aware there's a lot more going on in the world than, than just what's of interest or reported by English speakers. Um, I do read uh, Spanish fairly well, so I, I, I have some sense of, of that, but not any as deeply as if that was my feed, my news feed. Um, but it's interesting that in this, this year of pandemia, the word regenerative and regeneration seems to have risen to a much higher level. Yeah. As if... Um, well, more conventional media for one, but in some senses, policymakers um, and maybe broad brush 
environmental organizations, which when I say broad brush, I mean, they would take on a number of different uh, topics and, and focus areas, not, not, yeah. uh, not single issue, um, are all starting to use that word. Mm-hmm. They may not all agree on what's involved yet, mm-hmm. but it is interesting that that has, has risen a lot. And I, I believe that the experience we're going through is a part of that, is, is a part of the um, the energizing of that word. I, yeah, things take time, of course, also to move into awareness. So that that also is happening in tandem. But what, I mean, what do you think about that? that it's, it seems to me that part of the experience of having to rejig our social and economic systems more locally is in a way uh, enabling us to give ourselves permission yeah. to investigate these things which otherwise or previously might have been oh well, that's kind of interesting I'll, I'll maybe i'll find out about that some other time yeah 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 no, i think when i look back at this year what what sort of was a theme for me was in the beginning when the when the crisis sort of erupted in in a way i was um i remember feeling emotional uh, uh and, and saying to my colleagues i really hope I really hope that we take this time to reevaluate what we think is important. And I remember just being so touched by this, also because it was a bit of a shock, you know, everything changed overnight. Uh, um, but but just can we? I hope. I really hope that as a global community, we can take this time to reevaluate what we think is important. And um, since then, I've been. I, I always tend to go to where the light is or where the energy is because that I'm an optimist and and I like to be fed with optimistic stories and things actually uh, being changed. And I think that if the majority of the world is, you know, people are generally quite decent. They want to do the right things, even if it's for themselves or their family. I don't believe people are bad necessarily. Situations or, 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 or um, yeah, the way they've been brought up or things they've experienced make them do bad things. But in general, I think we, we as a global community, we, we can get together and hopefully we could use this time to, um, yeah, think about what is the cathedral we want to build build after we come out of this and what do we want to have rise out of the ashes? Do we want it to be the same as before? Maybe maybe it's not even possible, but what else could it look like? Um, and, and last week I also watched the movie 2040 where, where uh, this Australian gentleman makes a movie for his, uh, what is it, four-year-old daughter about what the world could look like in 2040. Um, and it's just we need to we need to dream ahead uh, together. We're in the midst of, of uh, we're in the mud still, but is there a new world that we could work towards? And what would that look like? And regeneration comes up a lot. So this sense of moving, I mean, sustainability is 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 a good thing. It was we've been we we needed that first wave of thinking about sustainability. But regeneration is almost like the next step where we not only do less harm but actually start to really do more good. And regeneration captures that better than the word sustainability, I think. Absolutely, um, absolutely so. Um, because it within itself, it has a sort of renewal, sort of forward momentum of renewing, constantly renewing, which is what nature does uh, all the time. Um, so the, yeah. the word just better fits where we want to, where we need to be heading, I think. Well, I think it also fits with the you know the task in front of us, which is which is rebuilding the systems 
um, and not just, uh, particularly not just the human ones. Um, but, but putting back the, um, you know, the, the critical uh, relationships and, and communities of, of nature to a functional uh, state. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I, I was listening to a talk by uh, with Char an interview with Charles Eisenstein on the, the time we're living in, and he said about this change that we we would like to see in, in sort of the cracks where the light comes in. He says, um, "Why are you attached to it not being possible?" Uh, that was such a fascinating question because. In my optimism, I always think of the possibilities and this is possible, check out all these cool initiatives and there's so much to be hopeful about. But then you always bump into people that are sort of maybe don't believe we can change the system because it's bigger than ourselves um, and, and, and it's just the way it is. Um, but then this question sort of is a good counter question. Why are you attached to it not being possible? Um, what if we yeah. give it a, a proper try? Well, I, su I suppose one um one payoff right one payoff of, of maintaining negativity is that you get to or one gets to reinforce their sense of helplessness mm. which is an abdication of a couple of things i mean i think I, it, it abdicates control and it abdicates responsibility for for impacts and if in some sense, maybe that's a lot more comfortable because you can just sit and whinge yeah. and instead of kind of, you know, straighten up, <laughs> straighten up and get out there and do something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah there, there is, there's a seductiveness, I believe, to, to maintaining helplessness, you know, and it, we see it, we see it in so many other situations, of, you know, it's, it's, in psychology, of course, that's it's one of the issues that I think, comes with our kind of disconnected and alienated society these days. So it, yeah. it's good that again, um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be praising a pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't want to downplay the tremendous amount of pain and suffering and, and, and loss that has come through this. No. Um, but as, as, as you mentioned, just before we hit the record button, um, maybe this is also the world telling us that we need to shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we are with a lot. <laughs> There's a, I mean, there are a lot of people in the world, and and that that we we can. I think we can manage if 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 we just um, yeah think properly and and reorganize ourselves in such a way that we do regenerate resources that our future generations will need. Um, but yeah, I mean, it also feels, I also feel a bit sort of, um, I'm always a bit careful with expressing that, but I also feel like the pandemic, it's bringing forth a lot of suffering and, and that's why I'm also taking it serious and I'm, I'm taking precautions, working from home, etc. cetera. But um, it was also, uh, epidemiologists told us for years that this was gonna happen. And it's actually interesting that it's only just happening just now. The, the, the system was already sort of cracking at the seams um, and um, th that we need to change something. The way we relate to eating animals, the way we uh, relate to, to our environment and how we exploit it. Um, we just need to shift because otherwise we're not going to be able to, the earth is not going to be able to carry this load. Um, 
Uh, so I feel like there is something in it that we can use for the better. I mean, you, all, you also know that saying, never waste a good crisis. I think uh -huh. that's also going yeah. on here. Yeah. Um, uh, you, yeah. You mentioned something that Judith Schwartz had, had said to you recently. Yeah, we were talking, Judith Schwartz, you've also interviewed her. She, she wrote a great book, The Reindeer Chronicles, about this movement, the restoration movement, people coming together in different ways to, to um, uh, restore and re rehabilitate areas. And she said that a friend of hers said, you know, what could, what could possibly go right? What if we just open up and step into the change, be present, um, and we're not going to, it's not going to be a quick fix, but it's, if we don't try, we'll never know. So what could possibly go right? Um, and, and there are some daredevils and awesome people that are already stepping into the scene, uh, starting with maybe a small piece of land or a bigger farm or with their business, trying to close loops. But, I mean, there are so many hopeful stories. And if you connect all those little lights, there is a huge movement going on, but it's, it's, right, it's right there. Um, uh, so, so this regeneration movement, restoration movement, or however you want to call it, 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 it is starting to take shape. And even the United Nations have called this coming decade as the United Nations decade on, on ecosystem restoration. So that's right. Yeah. We are heading into a new phase. Uh, the fact that the UN have acknowledged this decade to be the time in human history where we not to, need to start restoring ecosystems because they are the basis for our economy. That is in itself such a, a, a great development. Um, and how we do it, that we need to work together on that um, and uh, also let go maybe of old ways and how we do it. Uh, the ownership really needs to be at the local level um, uh, and they need to be in the driver's seat. And, and I believe there is a role to play for bigger organizations to enable that, for investors to enable that, to invest in regenerative businesses that have an eye on the landscape. Um, uh, uh, that, that I see this new economy emerging. Um, we just need to tell the story properly so that people start to, starts to resonate and then we start to connect around that new story um, and, and, and match the story, the imaginative story with reality and see that coming closer towards each other. Um, and that's where the demonstration projects become so important as well. Right, 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 right. So let's have a let's 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 loop back into common land for, uh, for a little bit here. Um, I, when we spoke um, a, a previous time, you had mentioned, and it's, it's clear also from the website, um, which we'll link uh, when we publish the the interview. Um, that common land takes kind of a, a helicopter perspective on things. Mm -hmm which must, I, I imagine, give you the opportunity to compare a lot of projects and strategies in terms of advancing this awareness of, of regenerative possibility and, and impacts. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And um, so, so Common Land started um, in 2013, and um, we have started working with a couple of, we call it core landscapes. So they're really our core partners that we work with. And uh, um, it's important to note that next to the four turns approach of so this concept of multiple values that can be created in a landscape, we also work with the idea of three zones. So moving away from this nature versus production concept and mm -hmm. adding a third zone, which we call the combined zone, we start to think about more integrated systems such as agroforestry, regenerative agriculture, um, you name it. Um, and, uh, and so this four returns, three zones, and then the 20 year 
horizon is the minimum with which we work. So ecosystems function at a very different time rate than maybe our human lives uh, uh, do. So, so we think day to day, week by week. But I mean, at an ecosystem level, you need to think in decades. And that's why we've adopted this 20 year horizon. And it guides also the work of the partners that we collaborate with. They also embrace this concept of a holistic approach with multiple returns, uh, with three zones and 20 year time horizon. Um, and uh, so we were working with uh, a local partner, Avalal, in Spain, with uh, uh, local partners in South Africa, grounded in living lands. In Australia, we work with a, a network of partners uh, in, in Western Australia, a lot, lots of names, but you can find it on the website, including White Oak and Agriculture. And in um, well, the Netherlands, we work with Weiland. Uh, and, and it's also a strong local partner. In India, we're also collaborating with Nature Conservancy, a local organization, Samert. Um, so there's, there's this sort of ecosystem of partners. That's how I like to think about it. We are, we are also a player within that network and we're all sort of interconnected uh, and strengthen each other within our own roles. So Common Land um, supports these landscape partners through uh, funding, but also in-kind support uh, strategic support, thinking along, distilling the lessons learned across landscapes and making that common knowledge and, and, and creating this knowledge base so that we can all feel connected to each other, even though we're miles apart. Uh, and it's also very much open to other people that do it differently, but are really connected to this restoration movement. So we're trying to be sort of an open, expanding, moving network. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to the Designers of Paradise, where we are speaking today with Willemine de Jong from Wageningen in the Netherlands. So you've got this kind of global network. Um, yeah. It looks like a, quite a few of those locations um, you're interfacing with uh, maybe other policy or strategy type organizations mm -hmm. and and they then more locally are interfacing with the, the projects on the on the ground. Is that more or less how it, how it works? Well, or is that too simplified? Well, it differs a bit per landscape, but generally it's about finding uh, one or two local partners that are able to play this landscape orchestrating role. So we talk about landscape orchestration as a as a way to describe this sort of being a system systems thinker, because you're operating a, a landscape is a complex system with people, with uh, ecosystem functions, within local economy, with energy demands. Um, so, so how do you navigate that system? And we're trying to work with local partners that are increasingly be yeah, becoming good at this landscape orchestration role. Some, some have already been doing it and are really good at it. And some are starting to learn through the network how you navigate the system change. 
So it can be a mix of uh, uh, environmental NGOs, social NGOs. It could also be a business or a semi-public uh, organization. So it depends a bit on, yeah, how the how the 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 natural flow of the network rolls. So sometimes in Australia we started with a commercial business, and it's now expanding to include um, uh, Aboriginal-led uh, uh, organizations or uh, social impact organizations. So it's starting to expand from commercial business to more uh, social ecological um, partners. Uh, and in um, the Netherlands, for example, it's a not-for-profit, but we're start you can see that they're starting to collaborate with local regenerative businesses. So it's also just where the landscape is at and which partner is best to take the lead in landscape orchestration. But then these are just networks expanding, basically. Uh, uh, as the landscape restoration work unfolds. Um, so it's very different per landscape, but at the same time, so much similarity. I mean, this business development component, you can really see that coming back. How can we use regenerative business as a drive, positive driver for change to create healthy economies, uh, sustainable jobs uh, that, that not only create uh, a social security, but also uh, regenerate the landscape? sort of a, a win-win basically. So business development comes back. Uh, regenerative agriculture is, is a, an interesting uh, uh, topic that also comes back across the landscapes. It, in India, it's more about agroforestry, but in Spain, for example, it's very much about regenerative agriculture. And this whole, yeah, we just had a, a le lessons learned event last week. One of the lessons learned was, of course, regenerative agriculture takes place on a continuum. It doesn't necessarily have a clear starting point, but it does have a sort of an evolution towards more diverse systems uh, that are more resilient uh, uh, and climate resilient. And it has some indicators that can be used to see, yeah. to track its progress. Right, 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 right. So, so we're also trying to see across the landscapes, what are sort of the general trends that we can see in terms of uh, growth or, or scale, but at the same time also deep scaling. So it could also be that you're working with the same 10 farmers, but that one of them is starting to transform their whole farm. Uh, so then it's deep scaling instead of scaling up with more farmers. So uh, mm -hmm. there are a lot of sort of different shapes of impact that we see. Um, so like, it's not I necessarily like, more is better. Sometimes yeah, yeah, scaling yeah. is also good. I like I like that concept of deep scaling a lot. It's the first, yeah. first time I've come across it. Um, it I, I know that one of the inspirations and, and possibly um, even catalysts for common land establishing itself was in response to the bond challenge. Um, yeah. Could you describe just really briefly a bit more about the challenge itself uh, and, and, the, and the response to it? And um, then maybe speak to if that is still integral to, to the thinking at common land or whether you've grown sort of, you know, well beyond that at this point. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when I started Common Land, indeed, the bond challenge um, was was a goal, a global goal set by a, a group of organizations, uh, including IUCN uh, and many, many others, to uh, bring 150 million hectares of degraded and deforested land into restoration. And they wanted to achieve this by 2020 and have 350 million hectares by 2030. So we are still connected to that bond challenge. Um, and, and what you can see is that since then, uh, that was in 2011. Uh, since then, many sort of uh, developments have evolved around that. So the Global Landscapes Forum came into being. It's a great uh, global platform for landscape restoration. 
You have, of course, the United Nations Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. You have the New York Declaration on uh, um, uh, Zero Net Deforestation. So there's so many pledges and commitments that came also in the, in the wake of that. Um, so we are still, still part of the Bond Challenge Network. Uh, what you can see is that it's mostly, I think, at a national level that uh, uh, IUCN member states are also reporting on it. So you can see uh, how far the goal is stretching. And um, I think we need to do more of that, continue collaborating at a global level, at a, a, a regional and a local level to see, yeah, what are the, um, the, the metrics we want to see as, as are we healthy or not as an econ economy or as, as a society? So the, the donut economy, for example, is also something that, that inspired us a lot as an organization. What are the new sort of parameters with which we want to navigate the health of our planet and our society? And um, uh, I think we're, we're, we are one sort of cog in, in, in the huge network. So uh, we're trying to carve out our space and, and influence the debate that we want it to be more holistic, more integrated, more long-term, moving away from this project-based um, cycle where it's just cycles of four years but actually achieving change in four years is quite tough. Um, uh, and of course, it's hard to find funding for 20 years, but can you um, talk to funders and investors to, to, even though this project cycle might be four years, to really look at this 20 plus year vision, because change is, is sometimes slow and requires commitment. And is the four, is the four year cycle based on um, political appointments and, and elections and that sort of thing in terms of office? Like what, um, what how did that happen? Definitely a connection, yeah. I mean, th there are a lot of great uh, government uh, uh, budgets being freed up for uh, uh, societal means. And, and, and there is indeed a three to five year cycle around that connected to uh, uh, new elections, but also we just, I don't know, it just in terms of project management, program management, project development, we just grew into this space where we don't stretch it longer than five years. Uh, and every five years, we need to sort of really push hard to, to get refunded. Uh, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But this constant fear of not being able to make meet the change in this short period of time is just I, when I when I worked at, at the Oxfam Nova, it was it was such a great experience because it's such a lighthouse organization. A global organization for for pushing the envelope on human rights and and and, and social justice. At the same time, I also felt uh, really strongly as as a young person starting at a large organization that uh, wow, this project cycle, this program management cycle is just pushing us into um, yeah. Uh, it, keeps you in, it keeps you in survival mode as an organization as well. Right, definitely. Because you, know, you don't you don't know if the if the if the thinking is going to be around for the next cycle. Exactly, and and I remember that there was a celebration and there was a speaker at that event uh, of Oxfam, and he said, "You know what? What's tough for large NGOs is that the science of delivery has killed the art of transformation." I remember. I think it was the director of Civicus back then. Uh, Interesting. And it, just, it just felt. I was just blown away. The science of delivery has killed the art of transformation. And so a large part of Commonland's work, uh, I mean, the director that founded Commonland, Willem Ferreira, he also worked in the NGO sector for a lot of time. He, he was uh, the director of IUC in the Netherlands. And he also, so that's what I also recognized in, in Commonland's approach is that uh, it's, how do we stay awake in 
how we develop initiatives and how we create local ownership. Because if there's so much pressure on delivering and reporting and having a log frame and a theory of change, then how much energy goes into actually understanding transformation and being able to navigate that? Those are two different skills. Um, yeah. And of course, you need to be accountable. Don't get me wrong. You need to report on what you're doing and how you're spending money. But this idea of, of risk management, pushing down a lot of procedures, also on local partners being having to deliver, uh, it just it felt it didn't feel feel right for me anymore. Um, nevertheless, I mean, you need large organizations like Oxfam to push the envelope to stand up for vulnerable people that are not able to have that same clout uh, or be listened to in the same way so so it's absolutely vital that they're there but how can we loosen the grip on those organizations in having to deliver and report and and, and how can we reward oxfams in the world differently and and thereby incentivize yeah. different behavior i mean it really strikes me often and and in this conversation once again that what we're really talking about is cultural transformation yes. as, as much as anything else, you know? I mean, yeah. I mean that ridiculous five-year cycle, that's, that's like sitting down to a dinner. Yes. And maybe a dinner where everyone at the table is hungry and hasn't eaten for a while. <laughs> and every five minutes, the yeah. plate disappears, <laughs> leaving everybody wondering, if it's even going to come back, <laughs> you know, yeah. and when, and what might be on it. Yeah, it's it's a form of insanity in terms in terms of you know uh, yeah. cultural and and at this point species and planetary survival. Exactly. So so and 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 if there's one thing I've learned about this twenty year horizon is um, it just gives breathing space. You know your the, our partners our core partners know we are in it for the long run, and that gives a sort of. A, a sort of a healthy breathing space to think, okay, we're, we're working our ass off, but we're also in it for the long run. So yes, we're pushing for short-term change, but we know this is gonna take time. And it also opens the entire uh, window on the intergenerational transfer. 100%. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. it's in 20 years, that baby you're you know, hoping to have enough food for is, you know, she's gonna grow up and, maybe run one of the projects. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. And and I mean, I remember starting at Commonland, one of my dreams was what if we could see people, like young people moving back to the area? And you can already see examples of, of young people, especially in Spain, for example, uh, saying, you know what? I see a role for myself in this movement, of restoration. Uh, I wanna move back. I wanna commit myself to this. And that is such a powerful move. And let's go. Let, let's go with that because we've got about oh, fifteen minutes or so more of of, mm -hmm. a, of a conversation, um, and we've kind of transited, I think, from last year to the coming year and the future. But let's let's go a little deeper into that because because that um, project in Spain um, is part of uh, ecosystem restoration camp movement which is now right. globalized right and a big piece of that um promise need and allure mm. is for younger people to become tooled up yeah and invest their passion and knowledge and energy into repairing land yeah 
So that brings back resettlement. It also brings back um, maybe a you know shifting economic opportunities. Um, and I think really maybe the most precious commodity is hope, you yeah. know, like, like demonstrable hope, not, not kind of faith-based hope, but you yeah. know, based on, on what you can touch. Yeah. And I mean, they also say, you know, five people can change the world. And I think, I think it's true, even though I also tend to underestimate my own, uh, strengths. I think if you, if you just organize, get people together. Uh, like like they do in ecosystem restoration camps, for example, and and start doing things differently. Start showing different modes of land use or um, uh, organizing events or workshops. I mean, it does cr create this little ball that starts to roll. If you do nothing, then nothing's going to change, right? Um, uh, so uh, there's definitely a lot of things to be hopeful for. I mean, I get an email on a weekly basis. I'm not kidding, of young people reaching out saying, I want to get involved in this. I've studied finance and I'm now working for uh, an organization that I'm, I don't feel connected to because there's no purpose. I get these emails on a weekly basis and I try to do everything I can to talk to each and every one of them. But, but there's so many young people wanting to make a difference, wanting to contribute somewhere and also wanting to find a job that, that connects that. Um, so I'm, I'm really hopeful in that regard. And we just need to really also offer these people an opportunity, connect them to each other, connect them to organizations. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we um, also set up the, a free platform called Earth, because we noticed that there were so many people wanting to know more, wanting to connect, wanting to get access to information. So we've basically compiled everything on the platform where you can find other people, you can find other organizations, you can find uh, ecosystem restoration camps there as well. Um, uh, stories, tools, because that we just need to unlock the information because it's that people are jumping up and down and wanting to get engaged, right? So yeah, exactly. We need to get out of the way, exactly. basically. Exactly. Are you are you doing any kind of? Um, I don't know whether it's stimulation or 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 motivation or. Or um, you know, pricking the conscience of of policymakers on this kind of thing because it seems it seems to me with the conversations now around things like green new deals, yeah, and one of the really really uh, strong lessons that I believe we have mostly learned from the past year. So I, I meant to look just forward, but I have to look back for a moment. Um, is how things are so interconnected. Yeah. Right. That, that, that this, you know, disease, d disease um, movement and economic collapse or, or erosion on a, on a serious level, um, opportunities, intergenerational equity. A lot of these things are now understood by people looking into it to yeah. all be facets of the same kind of disruption or, or not disruption, sorry, uh, dysfunctionality. Of, of, of our system and that ought to mean to me anyway um, and maybe I fail by being too logical but it ought to mean that there is some awareness and awakening and openness yeah. among yeah. policymakers for like how can we actually roll this these necessary changes out in a much more integrated manner and so yeah. I'm wondering 
is is that something that uh, Common Land is called on to help with at all, or is it something you try to stimulate in any way? Yeah, we're trying to. I mean, we we also hear that call. Basically, uh, I think the first few years we were trying to um, find out who we were ourselves and trying to road test this four turns method with our core partners. But right now, what I, I mean, our director Willem has always been speaking a lot at events, at policy events, to ministries, at the and in Brussels. Uh, but right now we have extra capacity to do that. So we are definitely gearing up to engage more at the European level on the Green Deal, um, but also uh, um, the biodiversity strategy. So we are definitely trying to uh, have more conversations with policymakers on the integratedness of the policies and how if you pull on a, a string on the left-hand side, something starts to um, move on the, the right uh, down downhand side. So we are engaging more in those conversations. We also hear this call from landscapes where they want us to support them in policy influencing because at a certain point in time, you can create a lot of action and mobilization on a landscape. People start to move, people start to organize themselves, they, they, they set up businesses, but inevitably you're going to bump up against if there is or isn't an enabling environment. So if there isn't, then you need to engage in policy change in yeah. the way uh, government funding is is being channeled, so it's inevitable. We need to engage in that, and of course, we are. We need to collaborate with others on that because um, policy influencing is a is a is a big space, uh, and we need to get organized uh, uh, on this front. Um, Did you have an opportunity to input on the recent um, revision of the Common Agricultural Policy for Europe? The, uh, the CAP. I think. So I think they, they closed that discussion yeah. a couple months Correct. ago, maybe. Yeah, I know we, we have been engaged on that. I don't know how how deeply we've, we've been engaged in it, but it was a bit of a disappointment when it ultimately came out and you could see uh, that it was watered down uh, substantially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that is a, a huge missed opportunity, really. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was my fear at the time. Well, let's, let's, let's step out of that little mire yeah. for now. Um, <laughs> What do you, what do you, like, what are your hopes for this coming year? What are your, I, I, I don't want to be like saccharine about that, like, you know, a greeting card or something, but, but seriously, you know, we're all, we're all looking at, at uh, what we could learn, how we could rebuild, um, mm -hmm. have we turned a corner of some sort, and how do we not fall back into a lot of the behaviors um, which enabled this disaster to, to unfold? Yeah. Um, but personally speaking, what are you what are you hoping for the next twelve to eighteen months to see happen, and, and maybe particularly things that are touching your own work? Good question. Um, what I would what would make me really happy is is seeing uh, a lively and interconnected community. So the, so the global regeneration collab, for example, where we found each other, is yes. to me a great yes. example. Um, Fortunes of Earth, we hope to also contribute there um, and many, many more. I, I really hope that in, in a year's time, we're, we're gonna be so connected and aware of each other's work that once sort of society start opening, opening up again, we can start collaborating um, even more. Um, and, and I also see, you know, work on the land really continues to take place because it's outside. Food needs to be produced. It needs to be transported. I see also a lot of the work still continuing, um, and hopefully by the time we start to 
yeah, have more freedom, we can even supercharge that because some things are still going on and ideas are being worked out. Actually, a lot of ideas that were on the shelf, I also see a lot of organizations sort of drilling down and really publishing a lot of things and putting it out there. So we're not standing still, really. Um, so I hope we just are stronger than before as a network um, and are able to leverage that for, for the UN decade. Um, and personally, there are some skills I want to pick up. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I, I like drawing a lot and, and simplifying complex ideas. So I want to get really- with Your color markers. Yeah, exactly. So I want to get better at that. Um, and and um, I'm a, I would also love to contribute locally. So I, Commonland is in that helicopter role, trying to uh -huh. connect bigger dots and bigger trends. But I am looking more to also spend part of my time, yeah, giving something back to the landscape that I was, uh, yeah, born and raised in. And is 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 Wageningen where you where you were raised also, or did you move there yeah. later? Yeah. yeah. So I actually moved back. It was so interesting. Of course, I moved to the the bigger bigger cities in Amsterdam and The Hague, and uh, I wanted to leave this town when I was eighteen. But I always felt like I, I probably am, I am going to go back at some point in time. And when I started working at Common Land and started talking about you know regenerating rural areas and going against this depopulation trend, I also felt like I need to put my money where my mouth is and. If I yeah. want to go back, why should? Yeah. Why am I waiting? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I love. I love it, and of course, I've probably most of the listeners don't 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 know about this, but we'll we'll give links for that too. Wageningen is kind of like an epi epicenter for both agricultural and development yeah. research, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. There, there's the, the Wageningen University is really well known for uh, its role in uh, in shaping the agricultural debate and and doing fundamental research around it. Um, so there's a, there is also a lot of stuff going on here. And I actually wrote a blog in Dutch on the silent revolution of uh, the rural areas, because when I moved back here, it's almost like I could see things with new eyes and see the huge amount of, of initiatives around, around regenerative agriculture, organic, uh, you name it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got so many positive responses of people saying, yeah, you should visit our food forest, come over. And... And it's Lovely. almost like it didn't reach, it didn't, it wasn't able to penetrate the white noise of the metropoles, mm -hmm. but there's so much going on. Um, yeah, no, that's, yeah that's, that's beautiful. Um, if there is something that you would like to maybe plant seeds for or leave for the listeners of, of this conversation, what might that be? Um, well, I think going really back to the essence of, of taking care of yourself, uh, um, I really, for me personally, for example, meditation or, or, or eating and living healthy and yoga are, are just a, a way for me to center and to be able to nap, yeah, uh, operate from a more, uh, yeah, healthy point of departure when I engage with others or, or the world. So and whatever is whatever people are into, if they have their own religion or their own practices that, that make them centered, I would really, uh, yeah, encourage people to go to that place. Even if it now feels like you want to have freedom, you want to break free, but use this time to sort of, yeah, practice some self-care because you're go we're going to need it. And uh, uh, it's a good practice. And uh, just 
just really going back to the basics of, of tending for yourself. Beautiful. It all does connect. Yes. You know, not, not in a trite way, but in a, in a very profound way. Yeah, and, and, and you're, you're, of, you're of more use if you are feeling centered and happy than if you are struggling and, and, and uh, frustrated. Of course, we all are at some point in time, but um, yeah, it's, it's gonna, you're gonna, we're gonna last longer if we, if we take care of ourselves. Yeah. And be more creative about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with having fun fixing the earth. Exactly. It doesn't have to be exactly. I'm all for for fun. Yeah. We take ourselves way too seriously all the time. Yeah. And especially when we fall into sort of what we ought to, should do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and one other thing, I also think in the regenerative movement or the restoration movement, I always try to steer clear of you're not doing it right or you're not fully regenerative. I think we should steer clear of that discussion. It's a journey. Uh, everybody's trying their best. Some are maybe um, adopting the word regenerative without being so. But if we create a strong network of people inspiring each other, that's stronger than it. If it's intrinsic, then nothing can beat that. So, uh, of course, there are going to be free riders. But so what? Um, yeah. it's In a sense, it's almost an indication that, that the concept right. has become really compelling. Right. We just need to tell the healthy stories as much as possible and and share work that we believe in of others. It's not about one organization. It's all all about collaborating and and, um, yeah, promoting each other if we see that it's it's good work. That's beautiful. We're gonna have to leave it at that, um, but I know you and I will have many more conversations going in the future. Looking forward to it. I really want to thank you for your time and, and your good thoughts and the, you know, the, the clarity of, of your explanations and hoping that um, people who are listening to this are going to be equally inspired by it. Definitely. And they're, they're always free to reach out. I'm, I'm an open book. so Brilliant. I'll put your contact information in, yeah. on, on the page. Thanks. Okay, well, mind. have a really good uh, coming week and a turn of the year. And um, you we'll too, talk Eric. again soon. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.